0: Well, keep your Bibles open at John chapter 17. We come to these verses again this evening. We've been spending some time to consider the weight, the heaviness, the depth of these words of our Lord Jesus. They're worth taking seriously for a whole variety of reasons, of course, not least of which is that we, as we listen to Him, understand that He's moving inevitably forwards towards the cross and is only hours away from his arrest and trial and crucifixion. As we listen to him pray, he is exalted in his thoughts. He's moving towards his destiny, a destiny that he had repeatedly spelt out to his rather slow and dull disciples. But now the time has come. That's the point of these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. It's often argued that Jesus is speaking here uh, in a way in which other prophets speak, and often the argument is that Jesus is using here the prophetic perfect uh, tense. Let me Let me demonstrate. When he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The prophetic perfect would be a tense that you would use, so it's argued, to speak of things that are still to come as if they had already happened. However, I want to just very briefly address this because… Gethin Jones asked me a question that I haven't answered him yet uh, this week, and it prompted me to give a reply to that question. And the question is, what is going on here? Is Jesus in uh, a prophetic mode here? We've been looking at this as we've been studying Isaiah and during last summer looking at some of the Psalms. And uh, what we've said is that when a prophet is prophesying, he is in the Spirit. You look at the example of John the Apostle in book of Revelation, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then he sees these amazing things pertaining to the heavenly sphere. He's immediately in the heavenly temple. He sees the, the candlesticks. He sees the Son of Man standing there in all His resurrection glory. And we understand from the Old Testament that the prophets of the Old Testament were ushered into that heavenly, that heavenly sanctuary by means of the cloud of glory. And in that realm, freed from the restrictions of time and space, we're able to move freely to times before time and to times after time, Uh, times before time, before there was a world to create. We hear the Father and the Son conspiring together in this great plan of salvation. Periods after the resurrection, Jesus exalted, periods at the very end of history. We hear conversations within the Trinity, as it were. Communicated to us. And uh, the prophet is the faithful recorder and re speaker of those words that he hears said. So, as we hear Jesus praying here, we understand that one of his offices is that of a prophet. Therefore, as he's engaging in this prayer to God, he is moving in the spiritual realm freely, unhindered by space or time. And so, he's speaking to the Father from the perspective of having finished the work that God the Father has given him to do. In fact, he won't have finished it until he has said the word, tetelestai, finished on the cross. There's a sense in which it's not finished until he's been raised from the dead. There's another sense in which it's not finished until he's enthroned in glory. And again, not finished until every last believer has been resurrected from the dead and is in His immediate presence. So we're hearing Him in the dimension of eternity speaking to the Father of things that are to come because in that realm they have already come. They have already happened. They've been already accomplished. And His theme, what well, the one we've been looking at, is this theme of glory. This is not something we can rush blithely over. We have have seen so far that God in three persons is intrinsically, essentially, eternally, internally glorious, a glory known only to Himself. And yet God has chosen to create things that put on display something of that inherent, internal, essential glory of His. He created the universe as a means of displaying something of that glory. Now, you'll agree with me what we know of the universe is that it is very large, very big, growing all the time, and that universe is a rather large display of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that that universe is a display of His divine power and Godhead. Then in the history of Israel, we trace this in a previous study, God revealed Himself to His people Israel as a blazing flame, a blazing fire of splendor and glory, surrounded with smoke. So, at nighttime, when you could not see the smoke, you could see the blaze of that in inherent glory. By day, you could see the smoke, and it was that cloud of fire and smoke that guided Israel through the wilderness. And when eventually they settled in the Promised Land, it was that blazing Shekinah glory that descended on the Holy of Holies at the temple and filled the Holy of Holies with the presence of God. Now, that was always, only, ever a created vehicle to convey to His people the size and power and Godhead of God, and the brilliance of His presence with His people there in the temple. The problem with that glory cloud, however, was that its presence was never constant. It would come and go. And it was never stable, because sometimes it burst out in judgment upon the camp whenever the people rebelled against him or engaged in idolatry. It was never constant, and it was never safe. And at the end, when Israel, in its disobedience, turns to idolatry and and, uh, follows the the idols, still giving notional attention to the God of Israel, but nonetheless engaging in idolatry, after about a thousand-plus years of that kind of behavior, Ezekiel describes the glory departing from Israel. He sees the glory moving from the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. It moves from the holy of holies to the the door of the temple. It moves out the door of the temple. It moves up the Mount of Olives. It, It rests there, poised and quivering as it were. Will it stay or will it go? And then suddenly, off it goes into the horizon, and it's gone and that cloud of glory will never be seen again, never seen again. Even though the exiles come back, they rebuild the temple, they inaugurate the worship of God, they purify their church at that point. That glory cloud will never, ever return. It will never again land on the temple or inhabit the temple. Is that the end of the glory? Well, the later prophets tell us no. The prophets predict an even greater display of God's glory. David Van Duren puts it like this, there was going to be a display of God's glory that would be different and greater. Quote, indeed, His greatest glory would be seen, not in a mobile cloud or on an earthly temple, but in His own Son, the promised Messiah. In other words, the later prophets make this clear connection between the glory of God, the coming of the Spirit, and the Messiah. Let me just read one prophecy that illustrates this in Isaiah chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord, a title for the Messiah, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day, smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. Over all the glory. So, I want to summarize what we've learned so far about the glory of the Lord and the Lord of glory, the coming Messiah, Jesus. First of all, we can talk about His eternal glory. In John chapter 13, a few chapters earlier, at the beginning of this last evening that He will spend with His disciples before offering this prayer in chapter 17 that we've read from, that whole evening begins by telling us something of which Jesus was supremely conscious. It says this, Jesus, knowing knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. That controls everything that's going to occur that evening. That conscious awareness and knowledge of Jesus, of His origin, He had come from God, and His movement, His destiny, He is going back to God. It's against that background that we read these words in chapter 17. Father Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. You see the self-conscious awareness that the Son in His humanity has of His existence, His pre-existence, and the glory He shares with the Father before the world began. And we've said through these studies that the Son as God shares the internal glory of God which no man has seen or can see, because He is, as the apostle says, He is by very nature God. So, we're not surprised, therefore, to discover that names given to the God of Israel are also given to the Son, and in particular, the God of Israel is called the God of glory. So, we're not surprised to find, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that Jesus, the Son, is called the Lord of glory. In James chapter 2, He is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the light of the gospel displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He is the Lord of glory. And our minds buckle under the weight of this truth that there is one eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. The Son sharing the intrinsic, eternal glory of the Godhead. So Hebrews 1 says, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We need to say that he never lost that when he came into the world. He never lost his glory. He never laid aside his glory. He never put it to one side. He was always, even in his humanity, the second person of the Trinity. He was God the Son, sharing the ineffable, indescribable glory of the eternal Godhead and upholding the universe at the same time as he was an infant in Mary's arms. It's an amazing thing. We can talk about the eternal glory of the Son and we can talk about the earthly glory of the Son. He talks about it here, I glorified you on earth. Here's an amazing and wonderful and precious truth to grasp. When we think about Jesus, when we think of God the Son, we do not start at Bethlehem. We don't even start in Nazareth where He was conceived in Mary's womb. He was with God in the beginning, it says in John. He was with God in the beginning from all eternity, face to face with God. He came into our world That language of coming, Jesus uses all the time, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man came, I came into the world, and so on, over and over again. He came into the world. That was a visit that He took. A journey was involved. He came from glory. He had always shared the glory of God from all eternity before all worlds. But at His incarnation, He takes the form of a servant. He comes. In likeness of a man, his glory is cloaked. This time, his glory appears not as fire cloaked in smoke, but in humanity. Now you see how far God has come to display his glory to his people. From a universe that displays the eternal power and Godhead of God, from a pillar of fire and smoke that spoke of judgment as well as of mercy and of the presence of God amongst His people, to now flesh and bone like yours and mine. All the movement has been down, 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 shrinking down to to Mary's womb, and then the baby in Mary's arms. That's the movement that Jesus makes in order to come close to His people. It's amazing, love. It's almost inconceivable that God should go to such lengths, not to scare the living daylights out of us, He doesn't just put on a a light and fire display. He can do that as he's done in the past. But his intention was always that he would take on in Christ our humanity so that there would be a man in heaven that we would recognize and know and converse with and see God is invisible in Christ in His humanity. He takes on humanity so that He will always be visible to His people. Isn't that amazing? And tangible. He will always be able to reach out His hand and touch you, shoulder, or give you a hug in glory. There is someone to see in glory, the man Christ Jesus. That's very important. His humanity cloaks His glory. And in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter, one of His closest disciples, puts it like this. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. There was a moment when, it, when as it were, the humanity of Jesus becomes translucent, and from His innermost being, there shines forth a splendor. Now, that Splendor, again, is not the inherent glory of God, but it's a display of the inherent glory that resides in Jesus as the Son of God. And it shines through His humanity just as the fire shone through the smoke at night as it hovered over the camp of Israel. So, the internal glory of the Son is is put on display there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it wows His disciples. They will want to go down the mountain again. They want to stay there. This has been such a holy thing that they want to remain at that moment and remember that moment when they saw this amazing transfiguration of Jesus. And Peter writes this about it. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They saw his glory shine through his humanity. The Apostle Paul, he was a latecomer to the followers of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is qualified to be an apostle because he had a sight of the glorified risen, exalted Savior. Jesus appeared to him on that Damascus road. It wasn't a vision. It was an appearance of Jesus to this man on the Damascus road. So, what we're being taught here is Jesus glorified God on earth. His glory was seen, but there is an apparent contradiction. We think of glory, and we've already begun to think of splendor and power and the Godhead, and yet here we have the glory wrapped in humanity, glory dressed in humility, humility, glory manifested in weakness. What does the prophet say about him? There was no beauty that we should desire him, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What was it the people knowingly, nudging each other, said of him, is not this Mary's son? What does the apostle say of him? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate Deity. So, there are great paradoxes in contrast between His eternal life and His earthly life. And yet, even in His earthly life, they saw the glory. John has said earlier in chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in what sense, then, did uh, Jesus glorify God in the life that He lived? I think there are two. There are many others, but there are two that I want to isolate. One is that Jesus comes as the final temple. The temple is a place in which God is present. He is present with His people. In the Old Testament, the glory rested on the Holy of Holies over the temple. It filled the Holy of Holies with smoke, a signal of the presence of God there. When we come to the New Testament, we find that the dwelling place of God is no longer in a building, but in a person. person is called Emmanuel, God with us. John says in chapter 1, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled, the word for the precursor to the temple, the tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. In John's Gospel, he refers to His body as the temple and tells the people that if they tear down this temple, he will raise this temple up again in three days. He is the final temple. In this gospel in chapter 4, he engages in a conversation with a a woman of another religion, a, a Samaritan woman, and he tells her that there is now, because he has come, no need of an earthly structure since God's supremely glorious presence dwells in him. And what, it, what is essential is that people come to him. And in the new heavens and the new Earth, there's no need of a temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp and the Lamb is its lamp. Jesus is the final temple, the final dwelling place of God. And then secondly, Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit without measure. Glory of God is often associated with the Spirit in the Old Testament. And when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, in the language of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit rests on Him in His total fullness, And so, his conception in the womb of Mary was the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and that holy thing that will be formed in you will be the Son of God. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him. In his ministry, the Holy Spirit energizes him to have authority over Satan and the demons. And at the end of his life, Through the eternal Spirit, we read, Jesus Christ offered Himself unblemished to God as a sacrifice. So, in His earthly life, He glorified God. At Cana of Galilee, when He changes the 500 gallons of water into 500 gallons of wine, with no fanfare and behind the scenes. Having rebuked his mother who wanted him to do a big show, and he tells, us, tells her, don't you tell me what to do. I'm following other orders. And behind the scenes, without making a show of it, he does this amazing miracle. And the comment of John is this in chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And then at the end of his life, chapter 11 of John's Gospel, he raises the dead Lazarus to life. Just before he raises the dead Lazarus to life, he tells Lazarus' sister, Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And he then calls Lazarus out of the tomb. His glory is demonstrated in Resurrection. So, in this prayer, the Son is speaking to the Father at a non-temporal level. He's praying before the cross for strength and enabling to complete the task with joy. And at the cross, the Father is glorified. Mercy and truth kiss each other. And the Spirit strengthens the humanity of Jesus to bear the sins of His people, to endure the dreadful wrath of God due to us, to persevere to the end, and to triumph, His earthly glory. And then the last thing I think we can look at is what we might describe and must carefully describe as His earned glory. Notice what he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, again, I say we have to be careful how we express this truth so as not to wander into error. I've emphasized Jesus is from all eternity the Son of God. He has always been co-eternal, consubstantial, co-equal with the Father. But here here we have something else here. Here we have the Son of God who has united to Himself a human nature. So that when when he is raised from the dead, for example, Romans chapter 1 verse 2, he is declared to be Son of God with power. Now, I take all of those words as a new title for Jesus. Son of God with power as a new title for Jesus. A title afforded to him because of his new status as resurrected God-man. He does not become Son of God by His resurrection. He becomes Son of God with power in this this new dimension, in a sense, because of His resurrection. He never stopped being the Son of the Father, never stopped sharing the essential internal glory of the triune God. But while He was here, He was in a covenant of works relationship with His Father for the purposes of redemption came into the world to, do, to undo what we had done by our rebellion. He came to, to live and to be in our place. Theologians divide this up sometimes into two parts. They talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ. The, the language has its limits, actually, but the division, I think, has its merits for the, for the sake of our thinking. What do we mean by His active obedience? Well, this pertains to everything Jesus did at the level of obeying the law of God. He was made under the law, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. That is, he was put in a position to obey the law. He'd given the law. He had given the law on Sinai to Moses. The Son of God had given the law on Sinai to Moses. Now he's put in a position in humanity under the law to obey it, to keep it. When he goes to his baptism, John the Baptist immediately recognizes he is a man who has no sin to confess, no need to repent. But Jesus says to him, you have to baptize me, John, because you've gone around preaching that this is absolutely God's will for all of Israel, and I'm part of Israel, therefore, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness. You need to baptize me. Well, this idea of the Messiah or of the King, the Son of God, the King, being put in a a position of obedience, of having to obey, is illustrated from Psalm 24. Psalm 24, the, the psalmist asks this pertinent question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? The hill is Mount Zion but the psalmist is thinking not just of the site of the earthly temple, he's thinking of the heavenly temple, the very presence of God, the holy place where God's presence is full displayed. Who can go there? He gives the answer. Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord. What's that answer telling you? It's telling you that none of you can do that. It's telling you that none of us can do that. We cannot ascend the hill of the Lord, and we cannot stand in His holy place. Who can? And the psalm answers the question. Because there is in the second part of the psalm, suddenly a great deal of fuss and bother among the angelic beings that surround the throne of God in the heavenly temple. And they're saying, you better lift up your heads, you gates. You better open up, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. David the prophet In this psalm is describing the only one who can go into the innermost sanctuary, who can climb the hill of Zion, go into that heavenly temple, appear in the presence of God. And he does so because of his obedience. He does so because of his holiness. He does that for his people. He is actively obedient on behalf of his people, doing what we couldn't do, trailing the way for us, going right into the presence of God. The other description that that the theologians use is of his passive obedience. It's not really passive in that he puts himself in harm's way and so on. But they refer to the passive obedience in relation to the things that were done to him. He was arrested. He was assaulted. He was mistried. He was brutalized, He was crucified, He was done to death, all all of those things. Hence the word passive. The Lord of glory came into the world that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest over all the house of God. And it was in that position, you see, that He learned obedience by the things that He suffered. That's how the writer to the Hebrews puts it. And he learned obedience through the things that he suffered in order that he might support and sympathize with you and me. He wants to draw alongside his suffering people and look you in the eye and say, in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. There is no pain that you No, no fear of which you're aware that our Lord Jesus cannot empathize with because He endured these things. He is brutalized. He is betrayed. He is verbally scorned and abused. He is roughly treated. He is smeared at. He is cruelly put to death. And He does this, of course, in our place. But He also does it for our sakes. That we have a sympathetic ear in heaven. In the, 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 the Son of God, in His humanity, experienced these things as He came into the world on our behalf. And so the cross was never far from His mind. And the idea of being glorified on the cross. That you would see something of the internal glory of God. Nobody knew about God's justice to the degree they would know it at the cross. No one knew the eternal quality of God's grace until they saw it displayed on the cross. Nobody understood or grasped the lengths of God's love for His people, until they saw the lengths to which love would go at the cross. It was a display of things we never knew about God. It was a display of His glory. In John chapter 12, Jesus said to him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on to say immediately, unless a a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. I have to die. Later on in that chapter, he goes on to say this, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. Again, in John chapter 13, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Jesus' active and passive obedience. We find this emphasis in in, in Philippians chapter 2 we're reminded there that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was co-equal with God. He was en morphe theo. He was outwardly and inwardly, by very nature, God. And yet he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what we can say about Jesus is that there is an element, a way in which we can describe the glory of Christ as the mediator, as the God-man acting on your behalf and mine. We can say of that 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 was an earned glory, earned by His obedience and blood Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Paul puts it like this, having described his obedience to death, he says, Therefore, on account of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. In what sense does He return to His glory? Well, He does so now as the God-man. He returns as our mediator. He returns as our leader and our representative. He returns as the firstfruits of the harvest, the firstborn from the dead. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. Now, these these are heavy, weighty, truths. The only response to them, I think, is worship, adoration, thanksgiving. To think of this amazing love with which we've been loved. To come to this table with, spread on it, these emblems of His passion and His death. And to think that He has put these down as a regular feature in our lives as believers to nourish and cherish us and to encourage us along the journey because where he has gone, we will go. And as he is now in his resurrected humanity, so we shall be one day. Father, we praise you for your word and ask that now as we turn to the sacrament that you would draw near to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.